Hello, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. And we'd like to welcome you again to our show, Cave to the Cross Apologetics. And we're continuing our look at uh, Mitch Stokes' book on um, how to be an atheist. And so he is working, uh, we're working our way through this book. We've worked to up to chapter seven now. Mm-hmm. And uh, in our last chapter, we saw how difficult, how hard science is. It's yeah. really what he wanted us to see, right? So he's not dismissing science. He, re- he understands it's important and it's extremely difficult. In fact, more difficult than most people think it is. You got to come right? up with a theory. You yeah. got to come up with a hypothesis, which is just a theory is in and of itself. Then yeah. you have to um, do all the experimentations, which is really difficult. And then you have to somehow find a correlation between does your theory say what it what your experiment came as a result or were you out in left field yeah. and were you the only ball player out there yeah. Yeah. because there could be you could have thought that it was going left field and it's really going right field and that's pretty much the extent of my sports analogy. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so he says, yeah, he says, there's no recipe for finding the best theory that will adequately explain the observational phenomenon. The process is rife with uncertainty, mm-hmm. ambiguity, and subjectivity. Finding a workable theory is nothing at all like falling off a log, he tells <laughs> us, right? Despite the countless possible theories that could fit the, the yeah. data, right? Or the apple so, falling on your head. Yeah, yeah, right. So he says, all this makes science uh, success in science a matter of an enormous amount of hard work, ingenuity, and creativity, and no small amount of luck. Scientists, he then says, are legitimate Heroes, right? They are heroes, and it's their Doing heroes. The that's yeah. right. It's yep. their hero status that seems to give them the credentials to be our final arbiters of truth. So when science speaks, as a result of this, people listen, yeah. right? Like that old commercial, right? <laughs> Again, it's hard to argue, he says, with success, and so that's what he wants to look at in this particular chapter. In fact, the chapter is um, t- entitled "Arguing with Success," mm-hmm. right? He says, so when we hear that science and religion are at odds or even conflict with one another, right? It's all too easy to think, then so much the worst for religion, right? right. Because science is successful. Again, this line of reasoning, he says, is predicated on the success of science, right? right? So science is successful, and, and we know that. You know, it's hard work, but it is successful, and so we should listen to it. So if science is telling us something, especially about God and religion and that sort of thing, we need to pay attention and, you know, yeah. and, and go with it is what he's suggesting here, right? I mean, after all, we're, we're talking to metallic objects that transmit our voice into electrical <laughs> phenomena that then breaks it up into ones and zeros and somehow reproduces exactly – or. Pr- Pretty much uh, with a small degree of certainty what our voices sound like. Yeah. And we're able to transmit it to the entire world. Uh, you take this technology, you know, 500 years ago and, you know. It would be like magic. Yeah, it, it, w- <laughs> it would be like magic. So yeah. there's there's that theory that, um, that uh, um, uh, you know, advanced technology is, is just uh, no different than, than magic for how it operates. Yeah. Yeah. So he, uh, you know, he he talks about Stephen Hawkins and um, Dawkins, and both of them, especially Dawkins, you know, with his conflict analysis, uh, analogy between uh, reason or uh, science and and uh, and religion. 
uh, kind, you know, tries to make an argument uh, about uh, the existence of God as a result of the success of science. He says, now we can all agree that science works. All right, no brainer, just like you just said, uh-huh. you know, the ones and zeros. He says, let's all agree for the moment now, so he's given some ground here, that our scientific theories really do provide significant evidence against God's existence. That is, he says, let us agree that science says or implies or proposes or suggests that naturalism is true, right? That there's no God. That's what naturalism says, mm-hmm. right? Nature is all there is. There's no supernatural. Right. Uh, with such generous concessions, along with the undeniable fact that science works, do we now have a good argument to the effect that science has shown that God doesn't exist? All right, so what is the argument here? Well, I, you know, we can kind of boil it down like this. Science works, right? That would be the first premise. Uh, and then science says that naturalism is true, or so says Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Folks like him, right? So if naturalism is true then there is no God. Right. right? By, by almost definition. Right, right. <laughs> Therefore, uh, there is no God. Yeah. Right? So since science, science works or is successful, and it claims, according to some anyway, that naturalism is true, then that shows the success of science, he's, he's saying, implies that God does not exist. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's what he wants to tackle in this chapter. And so, as we mentioned, the name of it is Arguing with Success. How do you argue with success? Well, that's what he wants to do yeah. in this chapter. He wants yeah. to argue with success, yeah. right? Um, in, in, in one of our uh, conversations online with, uh, with uh, the awesome uh, YouTube um, comments, uh, th- th- that was a, a critique someone had is, of course, you, you argue with uh, outcomes. That's, you know, that's what you're given. Well, the the problem with that though is sometimes you know uh, how how do we how do we um, provide food for um, you know a hundred starving people? Well, you just kill fifty of them. <laughs> then th- what was you know starving for a hundred is plentiful for fifty. Right. Can't argue with success, right? Yeah, that's right. So success how, wins. how do you actually measure what success is? And yeah. you know if, if we're if we're trying to find a, 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 a theoretically objective truth, that's what science is uh, alluding to the fact. Um, to the to to describe, how do we actually come about? Um, how how do we come about um, uh, knowing what success? Yeah, means? and 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 more importantly, at least for his argument here is, does success equate to truth? Yeah, right. And it seems and, like our definition of success here is minimal as yeah, well too. Yeah. So he says, you know, so the question is, do we now have a good argument to the effect that science has shown that God doesn't exist? And he says, clearly not, right? right? We need at least one other important premise, namely that what science tells us about the physical world is true, mm-hmm. right? In particular, those parts of, of science that are relevant to any argument leveled uh, at belief in God. So again, uh, uh, naturalism is this uh, idea that nature is all that there is. What you see, touch, smell, those are the things that you can kind of seek out and represent. There's not, nothing like um, ghosts or goblins or space aliens or God. And therefore, um, you know... Well, there, what, there may be space aliens, well, but yeah. they would have to be physical creatures. Right. right? They're, yeah. they're, they're a product of evolution or, or something that's not, uh, yeah. that's not <laughs> demons infesting the, the earth. So, um, so that's the worldview in which 
as some scientists, these scientists in particular, are are looking at the world through. And so, um, our claim is when we tend to study these things is, um, why do we believe your worldview? So again, we're 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 coming upon worldview questions. Um, it's not just the sake of, well, science. Everyone agrees science works. Uh, we all we all think science is really nifty. And so, what the scientists say. Uh, that's the the gospel truth, and so um, if they say, well, you know, all these things kind of bring up a cumulative case of no God, then um, you know it, it seems like there's no God, and so you kind of just you know throw up your your hands and you're like, well, you know, the people making the toasters and the electricity and the supercomputers, they, they they're really smart, and so uh, you know it's the Yuri Gagarin <laughs> thing of I went out into space and I didn't see a God. Well, you know, he was out in space, so he probably knows more than we do, so. Um, we're, we're again having to understand that people look at the world through certain spectacles, through thir- certain uh, presuppositions and assumptions, um, and um, we have to understand that even scientists do this. Yeah, good. Yeah, so you know, science. What uh, what science tells us about the physical world is true is what the suggestion is. He says, and there are good reasons to doubt this. Reasons that align with the sober skeptics, and so now he's back to his which sober is what skepticism. We be. Yes. Yeah, yes. stance towards uh, matters uh, intellectual. To put it differently, he says there are good reasons to doubt the connection between the truth of a scientific theory and its ability to work to ad- uh, accurately describe the observable world. Or to put it even more differently here, there are good reasons to be what he says, what he calls an instrumentalist. That is to believe that theories need only be empirically adequate to be counted as successful. In other words, theories only need to be able to allow us to um, m- explain our observations, the physical observations, the phenomena that we see, that's empirical adequacy, and in order to be successful. Right. Not that they need to be true. Right. Right? Yeah. So if I, uh, if uh, a few episodes ago, half a dozen, uh, we talked about the billiards ball striking. Um, if we didn't know or didn't have any idea what might cause the, the ball to move away from the other ball once it struck and you heard that, that snap, um, there might be uh, a good reason to suggest that you know little gremlins are on the other side of the ball pushing it, <laughs> and so that snap is is them you know uh, giving their one two three, and um, and so the the instrumentalist would say well you know if that gets you to a, a useful statement of of moving yeah, along yeah if it allows theory. you to predict that the next time the ball hits because you know you believe they're gremlins pushing it. Mm-hmm. Then okay, we'll yeah. just say that's fine. Right. It allows us to have some some predictive power mm-hmm. with regard to that particular yeah. the gremlin theory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ball pushing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. So he says we should be skeptical of what science says about those parts of the world that we cannot observe because you know it's getting at the observation. In other words, it's making a guess, an inference based on what we do observe about the things that we can't observe. Mm-hmm. And that does, and that's just an inference, right? It's an inference from that, and they may, they may or may not be true. Instrumentalism says that they don't need to be true as long as they work, right? As long as the theory works, that inference works, which is what he called a theory, right? It's mm-hmm. a, uh, then then we're good, right? All right. So now what he's going to do in this chapter then is to kind of argue it looks like here for instrumentalism. 
Um, now, again, what we we need to make a distinction uh, between the theory and a person, mm-hmm. right? Theories are not instrumentalists, right? Uh, there is no such thing as an instrumental theory. Instrumentalism is a person's attitude toward the theory, right? right? In other words, here's the theory. So you can either believe the theory is true and it's talking about real things, even though we can't see them and observe them, that really do exist. We call that realism. Or we can say, here's the theory, and it works and allows us to predict and to explain, Mm -hmm. and and we call that instrumentalism. And instrumentalism says we don't care. That's the attitude. We don't care whether or not it's true or the things that it's – positing that exist are true. Mm-hmm. So this is an attitude toward theories. It's not the theory itself right. that we're looking at. So here, like right? gravity. Gra- gravity, uh, Newton comes along and says, uh, he- here's gravity. Well, uh, Newton isn't quite sure what uh, gravity is, uh, but he can measure a universal constant of gravity and all that. And so is it a particle? Is it a wave? Is it uh, uh, a basic building block of the universe? Is, is it, it some force? Yeah, is, is it, it yeah. is it a product of, of spinning <laughs> objects? Yeah, I mean, that, that, yeah. that definitely was in contention there. And so um, the person who wants to say, well, what is gravity, has a different take on that question than the instrumentalist who says, uh, what can gravity kind of do for me? Like, right, can, right. What, what, what can the theory of gravity, right. positing that gravity, whatever it might yeah. be, exists, what can that do yeah. for me? Let, right? Let's yeah. take it like a particle in a wave. What what do I get out of that? And so we've we've actually advanced that theory more. Yeah. But whether or not we're talking about truth versus kind of a utilitarian, uh, is it useful? Um, th- those are two different things that, again, like you said, we want to make clear that uh, the the theory is kind of um, almost separate from the observer. Yeah, yeah. All right, good. So his first issue here is what he calls the pessimistic pessimistic induction. Yeah, really so pessimistic. Some, yeah. So sometimes <laughs> this is called the pessimistic meta induction because we're doing a, a, an induction on induction by looking at the history Ooh, that of is science. That yeah. is meta. Yes. <laughs> right. So it says one of the reasons to be skeptical skeptical is that as we saw in the last chapter, theories are underdetermined by observation, right. right? The observation doesn't necessarily tell us which theory is the correct theory. Right. It's not like uh, two plus two equals, all right, well, let's let's plug and chug. One, nope. Uh, three, nope. Uh, 2.5, nope. Two, oh, bingo. That's it. That's the only answer it can be. Uh, but here you have, um, well, you know, gr- gravity is a particle in a wave. Well, maybe it's not even gravity. Maybe yeah. maybe it's just uh, so- something that we've observed that we've labeled it as this. And so here's, uh, you know, uh, um, chromium. The chromium is is an, a basic element within the universe, uh, the ether that that uh, attracts <laughs> things. And so um, it's 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 something that we're not we're not even aware of, but because of pumping all of our kind of uh, putting all our chips on the table for gravity. We're kind of invested in in that until something comes along and says, "Oh well, here's here's something that's you know generating its own gravity that isn't expelling you know um, uh, um, heat or uh, it's 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 fully um, uh, adequate in its energy production." Well, then we'd have to rethink of our our entire understanding of what gravity is. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So. Um 
so so under determination, right? He says we saw in the last uh, chapter the theories are underdetermined by observation. After all, different equally empirical empirically adequate that is right the theories meet our observations yeah. they're empiric- empirically adequate different empirically adequate um, uh, theories can say conflicting things about what goes on behind the scenes and of course the big example is Copernic- Copernicanism and uh, the um, geocentricity of, uh, of our solar system right both theories match the observable data for decades before Galileo he says, turned his telescope toward the heavens. And realized that uh, Jupiter had moons circling around it rather than us. Yeah. And we took offense to it. Yeah, that's right. We're no longer the center, right? What's (laughs) up with this, right? He says, so so here we have two theories, both Copernicus theory, the heliocentric uh, theory, and the geocentric theory, right, uh, that uh, match the observation. All the are uh, their data, you know. Right. All the data was the same, and they they both. In fact, he says a tectonic theory also did the same thing, right? Uh, Tycho Bray is uh, known for this tectonic theory. Um, so here's here's the issue, though. During this time, proponents of each theory had to appeal to virtues other than empirical right. adequacies, virtues like simplicity, conservationness, and such, in order to determine which theory. But there are many more examples of real-life underdetermination. In fact, he says the history of science is littered with the remains of successful yeah. but yeah. false theories mm-hmm. right theories that match the available observations contributed to tech- technological advances and even made novel and surprising predictions and yet now we say well those were wrong those they're wrong yeah they were wrong yeah, yeah. They, they they weren't ever true they were always wrong right but they were useful yeah they were useful they, were they worked they matched the data they matched our observation mm-hmm. right they, but they, they, advanced, they were successful they advanced, they advanced technology. that's yeah, right sure but they're wrong. Yeah. Right? And so, so he gives us, yeah, he gives <laughs> us a list of them. In fact, he gets this list from Larry Loughton, who is a philosopher of science, right? And he gives us a whole list yeah. of them. Uh, Phyllis, Philistine, uh, the caloric theory of heat, uh, vital force theories of physiology, right? The idea that somehow our physiology has some vital force that's causing <laughs> life and that sort of thing. Right? Spontaneous generation, you know, that's an old, outdated theory, although... I think it's making a comeback. Uh, yeah. yeah. Punctured equilibrium. <laughs> right. The uh, optical ether, the electromagnetic yeah. ether, you know, all those types of things. In fact, he says we could even add Newton's theory. You know, it's, it was one of the things. I remember being in, in uh, physics 2 class, and after doing, you know, um, motion and, and uh, uh, electromagnetism, you, you move on and you do the second one, and we're talking about Newtonian mechanics and... Uh, the professor's up there and just makes a general statement about you know well you know Newtonian mechanics is like it's it, it's helpful but it doesn't you know quite get you there and wait hold on all that we've been studying throughout high school I mean you know once you learn bodies in motion you're there all of high school all of elementary school even and then we just paid hundreds of dollars for you to teach us before and you're saying it's not true and he was like no i mean the class went up in arms we're, we're, we we came upon this realization no one no one warned us about newton was wrong i thought I, we studied newton even in in of uh, uh, modern worldview and philosophy of science you're telling us it's wrong no okay it, it is yeah we, we've replaced newton and uh, and and sadly, Einstein killed him. Although yeah. someone might kill Einstein here. 
Yeah. <laughs> in fact, he says in some cases, false theories were more successful than uh, true ones, like this, you know, the, the idea that he gives us with regard to the ether theory, which was, you know, claimed to be the most validated theory at the time. Yeah. Like everybody believed that the uh, electromagnetic ether was indeed, did indeed exist, yeah. right? This in fact, so much so that they believed it over the atomic theory right. of nature, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, uh, he has a quote from, from uh, J.C. Maxwell to the effect that ether was a better confirmed than any other theoretical entity in natural physiology. Yeah, philosophy, so, rather. Oh, yep, yeah, philosophy. philosophy. That yeah. one, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's you know, what, what is space? Well, space is nothing. Space is just is, is there. Okay, well, the, the what's the difference between, you know, uh, the Earth and the moon? Well, you know, 93,000 miles. Okay, but what's in between there? Well, nothing. Okay, well, what's the, what's the difference between space between my two fingers? Well, nothing. Okay, so... It, it it's got there's got to be something there so yeah, this yeah. this this ether theory which i mean came yeah what crystalline spheres yeah and, yeah I mean, what, what is moving light through space yeah. right if it's light our waves well we know that it has to be some medium right. that's moving right. it right. right so for instance you know on the on lake michigan near mm-hmm. where we live right there's waves in the water that are moving uh, through waves so ether positive there must be ether waves mm-hmm. that that cause the, the light to move in right. waves sure. right makes sense and so there, that's what's moving the light yeah. right and everybody thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? Yeah, For like, yeah. hundreds and <laughs> hundreds of years. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, it's not that they were stupid, but it seems, though, that, again, as the instrumentalists would say, it was useful. Yeah. In fact, he says the great Lord Calvin said in 1884 <laughs> that ether is, quote, the only substance we are confident of in dynamics. Good. There you go. <laughs> the only one. Yeah. Of course, about... 15 years later or so, you know, uh, they discovered they couldn't find it. It didn't <laughs> yeah. exist, yeah, right? So you can't take an ice cream scoop up More there and Maxwell. Get, get some ether. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So so notice, here's, here's the issue. If the history of science really consists of, of a succession of increasingly successful theories making radical and fundamental difference um, claims about what there is in the world and how it works, why on earth would we suppose that this process has come to an end with the theories that we have right. today. Yeah. Right? We know evolution is true. Get over it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, here here's, you know, a, a half-page list of all the theories that we knew was true, too. And all of a sudden, you know, we went through a revolution, and, mm-hmm. and now we don't believe those things. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you just... It's it's uh, it's kind of the the better response to well evolution is just a theory right evolution is just theory as it exists right now but you know again how do you look at things how do you what are the presuppositions that you take on that and um, you know is there something better in the future where you know will the sun will the sun rise again tomorrow kind of uh, <laughs> deal we kind of have to take an inductive look well you know evolution uh, the theory works right now. Well, how do you know that the theory works tomorrow? Well, you, you, you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says, given what we know about the history of science, it seems that 
We should at least be wary about uh, how much stock we put in current theories, given the frequency with which theories are overturned. In fact, this argument, and now he, you know, he uses the name. He calls it the pessimistic yeah. induction. We can call it. It's also called the pessimistic meta induction. Seems a wholly appropriate stance for the sober skeptic, right? As uh, one philosopher reminds us, there's always the possibility that Lucy wouldn't pull the ball out. <laughs> Of Charlie Brown's way, but Charlie Brown had good reason to be skeptical. Right. <laughs> right. Ho- hopefully, the young young crowd uh, that watches us uh, understands that. Uh, re- <laughs> yeah, related. that that yeah that <laughs> reference right to to Charlie. Who is Charlie Brown? Yeah. All right. So that's one issue. The issue here has to do with the pessimistic induction, right? Uh, so the question is: uh, Just because science is successful, does that mean it's true? And the first. Uh, Salvo in his, uh, you know, uh, case against this is that, well, in the past, there were lots of and lots and lots of theories that right. were successful, but that didn't mean that they were true. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he gives us the pessimistic induction. That's the basic idea of the pessimistic induction. Right. Just because it's so again, and his main point is just because, you know, it's successful doesn't mean it's true. Right. His next one he calls uh, unconceived alternatives, and he he uh, this idea is um, is similar to 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 what we just saw with this. Right. He says there are there are actually two related arguments for t- scientific uh, skepticism from the history of science. The first he says is the pessimistic induction. The second is this. Not only do we have examples of two or more competing theories that match the same data, but we also have examples where the alternative theory was something that we hadn't even dreamed of. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so here's a here's a theory that came out of the blue that nobody had even thought of. And now, now we we hold to it, right? Mm-hmm. He says, and this philosopher, his name is uh, uh, Stanford, right? Is uh, is who he quotes here. So, um, P. Kyle Stanford. He says, um, Stanford calls this the problem of unconceived alternatives, right? For example, in the historical progression of Aristotle, from Aristotle to Cartesianism to uh, Newtonianism to contemporary mechanical theories. The evidence available at each time earlier theories was offered equally strong support to each of the then unimagined later alternatives, right? So we have this theory, but we might have a whole slew of theories that we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah, yeah, especially depending on... You know, not just what we know, but what we've developed. Um, you know, once Galileo puts two pieces of different sized curved glass up together, that suddenly creates a telescope, and wow, it we realize that stars maybe aren't as close as what we thought mm, it was existing mm. in, uh, you know, the outer crystalline sphere. Maybe they're really, really far apart, yeah. and maybe still, uh, you know, uh, different fluctuations in space-time even causes that distortion. Yeah, and then he gives us the example of Einstein's theory of relativity was not even on, you know, wasn't even on the horizon, yeah. wasn't even conceived of until he came up with it, right? <laughs> So there may be countless alternatives, though we're aware of only just a handful Mm -hmm. of alternatives, right? Um, He says, uh, the ancient Greeks could have thought something similar. After all, they could have built pyramids. They could build pyramids and make uh, beer. What else is left, right? (laughs) Perhaps we're only near the beginning of the scientific story, right? In other words, 
we think, well, we finally arrived. Mm-hmm. Well, he says the Egyptians could have thought that too, right? Okay. I mean, they could build pyramids, yeah, goodness build pyramids. knows, right? But he says, we're only near the beginning of this. We could be only near the beginning of the scientific story. Oh, yeah. With yet millions of years left. Perhaps we're at a laughably primitive stage in science. Well, just, compared to where yeah, we could be right. in a million years or whatever. I mean, right? just just look at wealth in in, in the world. Uh, you know, it's it's something that that we had to wait, uh, you know, almost two hundred years ago, for for uh, the amount of wealth that we had to uh, reach one hundred fifty percent of what we had a thousand years before that, and then to not concentrate it in the hands of literally. Uh, the the it's not even the one percent it's it's you know like the the seven people who were rich at the time, and then you develop a market economy and distribution of 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 um, of, of of work, and then you know you you add uh, wealth on top of that, and so you know the the um, industrial revolution came about that. So what uh, almost a century ago is is all we've had in leaps and bounds from horse-drawn carriage to automobile to airplane to jet engine to rocket ship to you know uh, you know whatever the next mode of transportation is but even look at at where we come as far as computer technology and we're we're now talking about singularity we're talking about singularity as as kind of a human species really early in that idea of mm-hmm. well what, what was a microchip before that no one knew what a microchip was it was resistors and transistors and <laughs> you had big tubes and you just needed bigger tubes yeah, until yeah. you know you could compartmentalize and, and have microscope uh, uh, stuff so this this idea that that we're we're advanced as far as technology um, has gotten us is is um, something that you know uh, like Elon Musk and and people um, that uh, that work the talk circuits uh, that are really interesting to um, talk about but you know are, are is is even human species a predominant one or are we here only to build the AI that goes out and conquers the universe you know <laughs> yeah. what what, what uh, where exactly are we falling if if we look at the scope of human history it doesn't seem like we at least from what our knowledge is of right now, it, and and the, really and the point here is there may be unconceived alternatives that we've oh, never yeah. even thought of, right? Right, and, and you just have to get there. You yeah, have to yeah. just so how can waiting. we say that the theories we have now are true? Mm-hmm. Right. Number one, in the past, we the theories that we thought were true turned out not to be right, <clears throat> even though they worked. And now there may be unimaginable amount of theory, number of theories that uh, are better than what we have now. <laughs> right. So. You know, it's pretty tough to say, well, the, the success of science uh, gives us uh, true theories, mm-hmm. right? Because, again, what the, the, the argument he's making is, no, nope, success and truth isn't necessarily the same thing, right? right? He talks about skinny branches here. Uh, and the idea here, he says, um, it's clear then that a false theory can work. And moreover, it's possible we're in such a situation now, and this possibility isn't merely an abstract one. The history of science provides us with many examples of false theories that are uh, accurately represented, observable phenomena, and allowed humans to develop useful technologies, but they were false. Right. right? Yeah, it seems like we're really bad right now at the really small and the really big. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So you know we're 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 good looking at plants. Hey, look, that's a plant right there. Uh, that's a good good observation. Let's let's talk about plants. 
Well, let's 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 look deeper at plants. Uh, let's look at the subatomic particle. Ooh, I, I um, quarks maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Sure, we'll go with quarks. So yeah, it, you know, it, it's it's uh, kind of the um, uh, uh, um, Zeno's paradox. You know, uh, how how far down can you get before you're dealing with either nothing or infinity? I mean, you, uh, how 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 does how does anything? Um, uh, if, if you keep going down and say, well, you know, what makes up a, an electron or a proton? Well, you know, a qu a quarks make up it. Well, okay, what makes up a quark? You're, if you just keep going down, you know, at what point do you do you stop? Right. Or, right. or how, how does how does that work? So it, uh, it seems like uh, we're we're doing really bad at the at the big and the small. So next question he he wants to deal with here is the idea. But these are the best theories ever, right? So. <laughs> I, I, before we get into this, why don't we do this? Well, we're, we're long into our discussion. Yeah, we beat up science really, yeah, really yeah. good here. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's break here. We can pick this up and try to finish up this chapter next. Yeah, time. yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, so um, you know, uh, please help us out by uh, sharing these episodes and uh, telling your friends, uh, Facebook and Twitter, and we're all there. Um, you know, uh, if you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, please leave us a review because that really helps uh, other people see it. And uh, we S also do subscribe. Yeah, we also like. do this on uh, on on YouTube. If you want to uh, look at Tony's handsome face and you know <laughs> uh, block out the other half of the screen, um, so you can do that. And then um, you know I'll, I'm always uh, uh, having conversations with uh, people on on there as well, uh, to my detriment probably. But um, um, if you can uh, help us out with that, that'd be great. And uh, we'll see you next week. So thank you.